you know, in education, we're taught um, to learn facts and to regurgitate facts um, and to, to see these facts as scientific elements of reality. Yeah, but that isn't the truth. There's a real big, big difference in terms of skills between um, knowing that, which is factual knowledge, versus knowing how, which is how to navigate different forms of knowledge. That's the that's the kind of struggle of our modern era is this obsession with science and, and you know, which like I hinted at is sort of a form of scientism because it just it just completely inhibits our sense of meaning as a human being. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Eri Malbatin O'Malley. Eri is a senior lecturer in education policy at Bath Spa University, and he's also a fellow of the Higher Education Academy. He conducts social policy research in areas such as well-being, mental health, higher education policy and practice, as well as social welfare law. Eri's central pedagogical interest is in nurturing critical thinking and complex concept development in students, and his research interests are at the crossroads between epistemology and ethics, and in particular, he's interested in using philosophical skills to better understand social problems. His interest in concepts such as well-being and happiness led him to focus his PhD research on conceptual analysis of human flourishing, and he has had the opportunity to share his research and read papers at numerous international conferences on the problems of reductionist account of normative concepts such as wonder and human flourishing. And there will be many papers that are coming out, actually, uh, in terms of the book uh, in the upcoming future. Now, flourishing is a concept that really we play around with uh, or use the word thriving. It really doesn't matter. But you hopefully will find this conversation interesting in everything that it explores, that it's not just about who we are or the things that are outside us, but actually where the inner and outer meet. Not looking at these as binaries, but rather rather concepts in themselves. Anyways, I'll leave space for my conversation with Ari. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. Hi, Ari. It's uh, such a pleasure to finally meet you. We've uh, connected so many times on LinkedIn, and I know you know Charlotte, and I really just want to get into everything that you do, your work, and specifically in terms of flourishing, what it means to you, where your research has gone. This is quite cutting-edge stuff, and yet at the same time, people are talking about flourishing, so I want to see where that can take us. The first question I'll ask you is, who are you, and what story do you want to tell? Right. Um, well, I am... Uh... Oh, who am I? That's a <laughs> that's a tricky question. Um, I, I suppose that I, in terms of um, who who I feel I am, I think I've I've had a really eclectic life. It's very uh, it's been complicated. Um, I come from a very complex family, um, a complex upbringing, uh, very diverse um, in terms of ethnically and culturally. Um, lived in lots of different countries. Um, I've had a mixed experience in education as a child, so I didn't get on too well in mainstream education. I found um, classes quite constricting in terms of spaces for thinking. Um, and I actually left school without any qualifications at all. Um, so I came really um, into education as an adult um, and developed, I suppose, as a as a person and really with, with a combination between my exposure to it sort of adult education, university life, um, and uh, 
religion as well um you know because i came to faith um as well um sort of 19 onwards as well so so yeah so those sorts of the main influences in terms of my formative years um um i mean in terms of um uh where i am now in terms of career and professionally i i think again it's been quite eclectic i started out um, as an empirical researcher. So I was doing social policy research and campaigning, um, working for the charitable sector. Um, and I saw a lot of pain after the, um, pan not the pandemic, the um, uh, age of austerity. Um, so um, there were cuts to public services and it was a very difficult time for those who were marginalized, um, those who suffer from mental health um, problems, um, substance misuse, et cetera. So I was very active supporting them as an advocate um and using some of that um experience to um leverage some sort of social policy research and campaigning work and that was my preparation for my for my phd i suppose so that's that's a kind of snapshot if you like of, of the of the period leading up to my current phase and i want to get to this idea that you're working with the disadvantage those that are marginalized by any stretch and that we might think could do anything but flourishing and yet that's what your research is in so this is quite a um, an insightful maybe entry point in it but before we do this i usually ask people how, what does learning mean to you but i'm going to switch that up with you and ask you what does flourishing mean to you so so flourishing for me is about managing in a way, um, in life, the difficulties of life and managing well, I suppose, maybe um, the difficulties of life. So um, there are, you know, all of us grow up with a lot of challenges and difficulties. And if we aren't able to cope with those difficulties, then we can suffer quite substantially. And I, I've seen a lot of suffering in, in my line of work. And so I think firstly, that if you like, the baseline for flourishing is a form of resilience and a form of um, coping skills and a form of being able to make sense of life. Um, so I think that's the kind of foundation, um, if you like, to flourishing. But that's not really where it ends, because flourishing is really about personal growth um, and developing. You know, I, I'd like to think, you know, because it, it's a metaphor, isn't it? Flourishing is a, is a metaphor based on the idea of a flower. Um, so it's, it's really at its core, it's something like the flowering of, of the, of, of, of you as a person, as a being. So that's kind of very different. So we have elements that's sort of general, if you like, to the human, human being, what it is like to be human. There's some general things we can say. And then there's that personal dimension, um, you know, where we have our own personal struggles, our hopes, our dreams. Um, and it's about realizing some of that in a healthy and a good way. Um, that's for me, if you like, a, a snapshot of flourishing. So that's why the sort of moral dimension and meaningful happiness is really important. That's why agency is really important. Having areas of your life that you have a sense of control over, um, that's appropriate to your age and your developmental level. Um, so yeah, so it's personal growth, agency and meaningful happiness, I think, um, are, if you like the sort of flowering elements of flourishing. Well, that has to be grounded in a basic ability to cope. And, and this is the part about resilience that is quite interesting. I just read uh, Jeremy Rifkin's book on uh, Age of Resilience, and he really makes the point that resilience isn't about status quo or, or staying with where you are. It's about being able to move through periods of crisis, which is in itself different from 
being adaptable and certainly different from being transformative. But when we think about resilience, we think about these resilient systems that are able to say, how does that work within the environment? How does that work when there are crises, resilience, and change, which some people might think are contradictory? Yeah. So, so, um, so, do you mean there's a there's like a contradi- contradiction between being able to kind of weather storms and at the same time adapt and grow? Is that what you mean? Sort of that tension? No, I think I mean uh, in our kind of maybe our initial thought, resilience might mean the status quo and being able to, I'm just going to stay who I am no matter what the crises are, as opposed to resilience in terms of kind of working, like working with it, but but still changing as we are confronted with different environments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So that's that. Yeah. So I, I think the, um, yeah, the, that tension, I mean, I think, you need a sense of vision in life, don't you? I think you know you, it's not just enough to survive. That's why that's why I was saying earlier with this idea about you need this grounding. Resilience is a very problematic term, to be honest. I mean, it comes from uh, engineering world, doesn't it? You know, we have resilience in metals. You know, a certain resilience before they snap. Um, so it's a sort of metaphor um, from engineering. But I mean, I, I think. Um, you know, it's a bit of a problematic term in many ways. Um, a, a better way, I mean, co- coping skills, inner strength, inner guidance, inner compass, you know, values, core values, um, and a sense of hope. And many people find her sense of hope through, you know, um, faith, whether that be religious faith or some other sort of faith, um, spiritual faith. Um, so I think those sorts of things are, are, are kind of better ways to express it in a way, because you you know it is a dynamic state that's you know of of growth you know so it's not just being static and surviving although sometimes i have to say life feels like that sometimes it's about just surviving the moment um you know and you have to kind of you know um buckle in um and and weather the storm so sometimes it is like that but that that isn't what it's all about that is like a moment you can have moments where you're like that really what it's about is i think that what you're suggesting there is about personal growth um and you can't flourish if you're not growing the whole point really of flourishing in a way is this idea of flowering which is developing growing moving and en- encompassing change in that um adapting um and so yes I, th- I think for me the emphasis is definitely on the growth as opposed to the survi- survivability you know but you do need both you know, that's the thing. You need that sort of, you need to be able to navigate and manage um, manage that. And that's not that's not always easy. And I think it's it, it's hard for people that don't have good support systems, um, you know, who, who don't have um, an environment around them that is um, conducive to helping them to manage those storms. Um, um, you know, we can, I think, um, in our, in, in the West, we have a, a focus on individualism um and you have this sort of bravado um where you know you're, you're seen that you know to be tough if you manage to cope uh and certainly in, in in my family for example we come from military family they're very, very much like that very lots of bravado you know so so there is a kind of sense where you just have to cope whatever whatever difficulties come that's true to an extent um but you know it's you know it's it's not really the way that we flourish because we're social beings you know, so we are social beings. We need to have social environments that are conducive to flourishing, and that—that's why education is has such a 
I think, a central place to play and parenting environments, you know, for children, you know, because that's the environment, if you like, within which we grow. And there's a social piece to it. There's a purpose piece to it. Of course, we can probably bring it together in that social purpose. And you mentioned the spirituality, religion, all of these things that bring us together. How do we navigate this idea of our personal purpose and connecting with others and sharing purposes and and working through these ways of finding ourselves and finding each other? What are some of the information or some of the, what your research has pointed out that really creates that environment where we can actually do that inner work within certain environments. What, what are some of the, the, the pieces that, that you already alluded to, but maybe a little bit more? Yeah. Um, I suppose it's, um, it's, it's bespoke. It's different for each person. Um, it depends what problems we have. <laughs> each of us grow up with different problems with different, um, contexts and with different needs um so i think that i think it's it's difficult to generalize but i'm i'm an advocate of um conceptual mastery so um part of my approach to philosophy is working on oneself through some of the big challenges that we have that we face in the world that we whether that be inner in terms of our inner psychological realm emotional realm etc or whether that be with trying to deal with some of the problems in society. Um, I think there's a real place for good thinking, for clear thinking. Um, and so, but you have to have an ethic, you have to care about that. So not everybody cares about that. Um, other people are, you know, for that, that's, that's my view, if you like, I think it, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's helpful, but it's not helpful for everybody because some people are actually very intuitive. They have naturally a good ability to think well, um, without necessarily having any kind of frameworks for thinking, you know, there's just a good intuition. They have a good gut, a good, um, so they have good tacit skills. So I think it very much depends on the sort of person that you are, um, and the environment that you've had, um, perhaps the, the combination of environment and the way you've responded to your environment in your developmental years. Um, and some are very blessed to have developed a set of skills where they're able to navigate, navigate life. In a, in a good way, um, without having any formal kind of training or, or, you know, having to think about it really in terms of methods of thinking, etc. Um, but, you know, I think because we have such a varied um, sense of different uh, sort of uh, forms of upbringing and experiences, I think that in general, we can say it's a good skill to have to think philosophically, and to be able to pursue our thoughts to their logical end. Um, and to pursue them to, you know, to the to the point where actually what's problematic about this line of inquiry, what's problematic about this line of thinking, what's going on here. So constantly questioning oneself. I think reflexivity is probably a good way to express it, is developing that sense of reflexivity where we're self-critical um, and we have the conceptual toolkit to be able to manage those deeper problems. Because I think ultimately we can we get to those philosophical points where we don't know how to handle a particular form of inquiry or question. That's where philosophy or philosophical skills, conceptual skills, conceptual mastery can help us break that deadlock and then we can grow. Um, but like I said, some people have that naturally and it's, it is wonderful to see. Um, um, 
you know, I, I, I was, I was not one of those. <laughs> you know, I, I had, I had, you know, uh, I have to kind of learn the hard way. I think in my life, that's that's the best way that I could exp- express it. Is, is, is that I, you know, I reach a certain point and then there's a, there's like a deadlock. There's like a wall, and you can't get beyond it until you can. And then, you know, but that's where I think the, the skill, the sorts of skills that I advocate for in my, in my PhD, in my book, um, that are not. They're not things that I've set up. They're things that Wittgenstein, philosopher Wittgenstein, set up. Um, his insights on how language works are, are really important because it helps us to realize actually the relationship we have with our mind and language, how we articulate um, the world around us and how we create worlds really through language or or mediate, um, mediate through language, uh, mediate our understanding through language. Okay, I really want to explore this because I find it tremendously interesting. And before we do so, I kind of want to flip it. And maybe this is a little bit of a cheap shot to educational, you know, traditional education, because we we, we see so much uh, that, you know, kids are are depressed, this sense of discord within, within some of the, our younger people. Are there things that you see maybe, because you talk about reflexivity, what are some of the ways that education um, and, and the way we work maybe go against some of what you're finding in your research about flourishing, traditional ones? And of course, we, we acknowledge that this is a broad stroke and a generalization. Yeah, 100%. So I'm in the middle of writing a paper on this, actually. Uh, so um, it's a very, very interesting area. Um, and I have to say, I'm not the first person to notice these sorts of issues. There are many philosophers and others that have been uh, um, if you like, um, uh, singing that song for a long time. Um, but essentially, I mean, even going back to Dewey, you know, um, you know, so I think, I think the, the, the issue really is, um, with, I think in the West, we, we have an industrial mindset. We're stuck in that industrial mindset, um, which had its own legacy, you know, problems, which was inherited, if you like, from a former mindset of an imperial mindset or a feudal mindset. So we have these kind of like, if you like, these um, um, issues of cultural heritage that we're stuck with in many ways. And the education system is just a feature of that. It's an old, in my view, an old decaying form of that that culture. Um, you know, it's the culture of um, put up and shut up learn this, you know, learn this fact, regurgitate it, um, do it according to my framework as I'm, I, you know, um, I'm sort of parodying traditional forms of teaching, if you like here. Um, and what that does is it closes down the imagination. And of course, children are filled with imagination, aren't they? They're, they, they're, they're, nat- they're natural beings, they're of wonder. Um, as we are as adults na- in a natural state as well you know but it's squeezed out of us through education and um you know in education we're taught um to learn facts and to regurgitate facts um and to to see these facts as scientific elements of reality yeah but that isn't the truth history is littered with um um uh what can i say um listen what what there's a lack of recognition of the politicization of knowledge and um and it's obscured by this idea of learning facts in history for example and other and other sorts of t- subjects english is far better in a way because you know for example when you're learning literature and stuff you're encouraged to use elements of your imagination as you are with art so i think english and art as subjects are 
lend themselves to imagination, for example. But traditionally, the rest of the subjects are very scientific in orientation. And science is great, but it has its limitations. And those limitations are not acknowledged in the system. And so where you have an over um, where you have an over um, emphasis on science, then that's called scientism. And that's, I think, is what we kind of we're in that sort of paradigm. And it's, it's useful for for policymakers, for um, governments to have these sorts of systems because they work at the centralized, you know, at the large um, industrial scale. That's that's, you know, but they're very dehumanizing. Um, and, um, you know, in my in my in my book I, and, and the Ph.D., I talk about um, I raise um, uh, uh, I highlight um, Ryle. I don't know if you heard of Gilbert Ryle, but he's a philosopher from um, uh, sort of 50s and 60s, ordinary language philosopher, influenced by Wittgenstein. And he talked about knowing how versus knowing that kinds of uh, knowledge. And so there's a real big, big difference in terms of skills between um, knowing that, which is factual knowledge, versus knowing how, which is how to navigate different forms of knowledge. So they're very, very different skills. And what we have in the school system is an overemphasis on knowing that approaches. And really what we need is children that are able to manage all sorts of different forms of knowledge well, to comprehend their world. And that's a knowing how kind of knowledge. It's a practical knowledge um, that is you know, that is unfortunately neglected in the education system because of this idea of regurgitating knowledge and memorization and, and everything else. It discourages that open, imaginative thinking. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's dehumanizing. Um, and I think it's a it's a squandering of human potential. Now, you started off by saying that you um, began your career as an empirical researcher. So there's been a bit of a shift from your point of view. Could you just maybe, just just so we all have a shared understanding of what empiricism is, yeah, briefly? Yeah, so, I mean, empirical work essentially is um, dealing with um, uh, forms of knowledge that are measurable, um, repeatable, you know, so if you if you repeat an element of research, the idea is that you're going to get, you know, good good em empirical research measures whether or not um, it's 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 valid. So, for example, if you start with the wrong sorts of pre uh, presumptions, then you like in, in a lot of psychological research, you have um, um, you have um, uh, problems with uh, you know uh, re replicability in the research. So they can't replicate the research, which actually points to really fundamental um, conceptual problems in the empirical research. But to, to be a little bit clearer, I suppose, the best way to look at it is um, empirical research deals with the real world, measurement of the real world, um, which is essentially scientific sorts of th thinking, theoretical forms of thinking, versus conceptual, which is um, really about how we think about the world using you know insights through language and, uh, and other sorts of tools. Um, both of them are very important to complement each other. So imp good empirical work is sensitive to the conceptual realm um, for coherence, logical coherence, and all sorts of things. Um, um, uh, and, you know, there are limits to both of the paradigms. There are limits to measurability, that what is measurable, and there are limits to, as well, to um, philosophical work. You know, you can't, you can't answer all the questions. So each of them have 
certain questions that are amenable. So if we ask, for example, what is flourishing, that's a philosophical question. But if we ask someone, how do you flourish as a person? That's an empirical question. Are you with me? I don't know if that helps to sort of carve it up for your um, for your listeners, but the, it depends on your line of inquiry will lend itself to certain forms of um, research methods, basically, whether they be conceptual or whether they be um, empirical. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense. And it's that first step that we often forget when we are uh, um, so, uh, I'm going to get a little bit dramatic here, but when we're enamored with the scientific method and we think that that's the way we're going to go with science and it has to be replicable and that's what science is, that's hard science, those are the good things. We forget that it's the, the epistemological question, the ontological question that starts, that is, what is the question that we're asking? That frames everything so that, just like you said, the, the facts that actually come up with really depend on the questions that we pose in the first place. They're not like facts that are out in the ether that we bring up, no matter what Plato might think. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, Wittgenstein poo-poo place. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that it's, you, um, you know, the great philosophers, uh, I think I said something like, it's such a wonder that after all of these centuries, after the great philosophers, that we still haven't made much progress. <laughs> so, so it's not just, that it, there's nothing wrong with all of the amazing work that obviously the great philosophers did. The, 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 the problem really is that, well, how have we developed really since then? <laughs> because it's understandable that Plato might look at these sort of, you know, these sort of platonic forms and everything, it's just a it's a line of inquiry and it's interesting and you know based on his culture and where he's coming from it's it's amazing and he obviously advanced knowledge in so many different ways so it's fantastic but actually how can we develop that since then you know where are we now that's really what matters so um uh you know um it's it, the shame if you like is that we haven't actually moved very far forward since since those since those ancient times you know and I'm curious about this idea of language, about metaphors, about the words that we use and how that shapes us. And I, I, I keep thinking of what's going on in Gaza and how people are saying, I stand for this or I stand for that. And then I keep thinking about what it means to stand. And I, and, and I just think that that is in itself immobile and that it doesn't actually, it means that actually your thinking isn't moving. I mean, we're actually saying literally I'm standing and I'm not moving. Is this what you mean when you talk about language or, or how does that work? If we could unpack what you mean in terms of the research that you have with language and how that all connects to some of your work. It's a big question and it's a very, very difficult one to answer, to be completely clear, because it's, well, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to give you a summary. I mean, essentially, um, you know, we, we're minded creatures. Yeah, we have minds. Okay. And the, and the way that we have minds that, that if you like the, re, the, the way that we know we have minds is because of language, without language, there isn't really a mind per se. There's just experience and consciousness, like a, a sort of animal form of consciousness, the, 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 the capacities, the human powers that we have to have a mind is because we have language. So our conceptual realm is really the mind, it's the human mind, is the whole conceptual realm, the way that language works, our ability to understand and manage knowledge in these very complex, nuanced, abstract ways is, 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 is if you like, the manifestation of the, of the mind, but done through knowledge, if, done through um, language, almost like language is the interface. Um, but without the interface, there's nothing. So, so, so language is that central to, um, 
to um, uh, understanding human nature and understanding the human mind. Um, and I think that it's neglected. I think that um, aspect is neglected in um, in the research, the importance of language and the philosophy of language, understanding really. So the philosophy of language really helps us to have a good philosophy of mind, for example, things like that. But it's all really rooted in understanding how we use our terms and language and how they help to shape our understanding. Um, that's where sense comes from. That's where logic comes from. It's through this sort of mitigation through language and done well, language done well, if you like. So, you know, it's useful in all sorts of ways, you know, so we, you know, over political problems, um, I think we live, we live, uh, maybe it's always been a bit like this, but we live through a very difficult polarized era, um, increasingly polarized, it feels like anyway. Gaza and Israel is one of those tension points. Um, COVID has been uh, the period that, you know, the politicization of knowledge during COVID has been another very polarizing period. Then we had, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, all these different, we've had wave, or Ukraine, I mean, you name it, wave after wave of, the, of political polarization. And I think that if you have these sorts of skills of language, you can help to cut, you can, you can become less blind to some of the propagandistic elements in society and politics. You can see things for how they are because you can understand and navigate knowledge better. So, so I think that it helps you to be a better critical thinker, essentially, um, which is what I think we all need as citizens, um, as well as, you know, to nurture spaces of criticality within within school systems as well, so that children, as they as they're developing their rational powers, are able to manage difficult social problems, and to develop their own sense of responsibility. It starts in school, really. It starts in the parenting environment and school. But, you know, it it can only happen if they have good mentors. And we're the mentors, right? We're, we're the adults. We're the ones that need to have those skills. So um, so we need to start somewhere. So we need to start, I think, with developing those skills in ourselves and um, in society as, as citizens and responsible citizens that have a very complex um, political climate to navigate. That's very polarizing and very difficult. Um, but I think that these sorts of um, uh, conceptual skills can help us to see clearer. And when we can see clearer, we can manage to make better decisions and more ethical decisions um, and uh, more logical uh, decisions as well. So that, yeah. And I guess, I, I guess my big question with the idea of language in terms now, of course, we could always explore the nonverbal language, which is also quite so, so important in terms of the way we communicate and express ourselves. But I, I keep thinking about these these complex words like like freedom, democracy, justice, and how they're so difficult to unpack. And then there's a whole cultural piece to it. I'll always remember when I was teaching in Singapore, we were um, looking at the French Revolution, and they asked me, but why is it that French people demonstrate so much? And I said, well, because, you know, the whole country was founded on demonstration and it's freedom. And they said, but but our freedom is to be not subjected to other people's demonstration so that we can freely flow throughout the city. It, it, and, and it really, <laughs> which is fair enough, I guess, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess my point of view is that to me, freedom was about expression, but for them, it was like in that context, it was a different entry point. 
how do we get away from just getting stuck in the quicksand of having to unpack incessantly and as times change and in the, the word gender being a perfect example of a word that's changed so much over time. How do we go beyond this quicksand and actually get to the, to the meat of Gosh. the matter? <clears throat> I mean, we've got to bear in mind that we live in a pluralistic society generally in the West. So I think the tension is part of what that kind of society is. We live in, in, in many senses, in, in a sense of polar, polarization because of the nature of the beast, the nature of the system that we're in. We're going to have opposing sides all the time. We're going to have a lot of tension in, in, in this sort of democracy. Um, so there, there, there are healthy tensions, I think, and there are unhealthy tensions. So, um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an advocate of liberal values. And so I think values help us to navigate as well. The, so you have, you know, you need to have be tolerant. Um, others and so on. So tolerance and those basic moral principles, um, you know, you need to be empathetic, etc. I think we are increasingly in a very emotive period where we're intolerant of others in society. And it's been exacerbated by governments and by other sorts of um, NGOs and all sorts. You know, gender is one of those really polarizing, as you suggested, one of those really polarizing topics. There is an intolerance of conservative views of gender. Um, and then on the conservative side, there's a lot of intolerance of the liberal, um, you know, radical liberal um, conceptions of gender as well. So there's a lot of intolerance. And and I think we just need more tolerance, basically, you know, need to understand difference, that that's the kind of society we live in, that we have different views. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the the way to navigate because you, you touched on this idea of freedom and it's like, well, how do we know really what freedom means if they're coming in from one point they're coming in from another point you know so you know it context helps to fix all all sorts context is king so it really depends what the problem is you're trying to address so what's the problem you're trying to address if the problem is who's right between those rival conceptions i think you might find yourself in a bit of a pickle because there's no once for all conception of freedom it's like flourishing. There's no like, oh, this once and for all thing, what flourishing is, like as if it's a platonic solid, you know, like it's an entity out there, you know, in the ether that we just need to find it and discover it. And there it is. That's what it is. You know, we're the ones that are right, not you, you know, that sort of thing. It's really, it's not, that's not how language works. Language is really quite um, fluid. Thank goodness it is. Thank goodness we have a lot of freedom, which, um, you know, because that is liberates the imagination. Um, but, you know, the concepts of freedom, you know, we have different conceptions of freedom and it really depends what's at stake. So, you know, if we're talking about freedom to protest versus freedom to carry out your business, for example, you to have not to, to have not have your business impaired. Well, you know, they, they, they're, I suppose that way, the, uh, one way to navigate that would be to look at the ethics of um, protest, you know, so it would be like, well, OK, well, we live in a in a democracy where protest is an important element of um, holding those to power to account, those in power to account. Yeah. So do we want a kind of democracy that holds um, power to account um, or do we not? This is you know really simple question really. So, do we rather have a system that is um, convenient for business, but then we would be attracting tyranny and tyrants in power? Yeah. So these are kind of questions that we need to decide as a society. What what are our priorities? So you know if we want 
um, the sort of system that holds power to account, we need to have protest. Um, we need to have different forms of holding power to account. Um, that's It is inconvenient, but that's the trade-off. That's the kind of ethical trade-off that you have in a society that holds power to account. And, um, you know, that's, that's a conversation that we need to have at parliament level or whatever, you know, um, federal level um, between these different competing um, problems, you know, in society. Um, but that's kind of like a, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say it's partially a conceptual problem because you have this idea that, oh, there's this once and for all thing called freedom. That's a conceptual problem to unpack that. But it's really a, a form of really political and social normative problem because we need to make decisions in life about what is the, what's the wisest way forward in a liberal democracy. So are you with me? So there's a, there's a conceptual philosophical element to it in, that will help us to arrive at a good question. And then the practical kind of normative dimension um, is really where we need good deliberation and good f facilitation of dialogue where different competing groups can arrive at a reasonable conclusion that's in everyone's interest. And so I'm looking at the different threads of our conversation. We talked about what might flourishing look like, and we talked about the fact that it is something that exists within an environment and context. Maybe there are certain ways that we're wired, but it still has this idea of, of, of the conditions that we're in. We talked about empiricism and also conceptual questions, the epistemology, the ontology of, of where we might be in terms of some of the, the questioning we might have and, and the data that we generate. And now we're talking about these words that actually language flourishes when it's dynamic and, and flourishing itself is dynamic. So again, we're looking at um, the, the, this process of continual change. I, I love this this this. Um, it, it might seem like a binary, but it's actually quite complementary, this idea of grounding it, as you mentioned, between the conceptual and the normative or the empirical and how you need both. And one's not, one can't exist really without the other because they, they feed. I mean, that, that's actually quite simple, but that's where the genius is. And at the same time, it stretches us because it's not how we're used to thinking. Totally. But that, see, this is where philosophical skills helps. That's what it, so this is it can unlock a whole world of like of so you can be stuck in a problem. That's what you know, these brick walls that I was talking about earlier. You can just be stuck and not know how to navigate the knowledge, not, not know how to navigate the problem, not know how to go beyond. Um, because you have these, you know, so I, I talk about this in, 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 in the book and PhD where I talk about, um, in the context of flourishing, and, and I actually talk about, um, Garver. So Garver's this, um, philosopher, um, that he, he wrote this paper, um, in the, in the 60s, I think, that. Um, where he talked about the problem of seeing um, concepts as competing or or contested. So he talked about, you know, you raised freedom. So I think he talked about freedom. He talked about democracy and things like that, for example. And he says one of the problems of having um, a view of concepts as competing or contested, you know, like, for example, flourishing is contested or democracy is contested, is that it can lead to a few sort of, if you like, epistemic vices, yeah, sort of vices of thinking. So, for example, it can lead to um, forms of scepticism where we just give up on any form of settling the debate. We just think, you know what, there's no way we can settle this debate. Everyone has a view and no, we just can't settle it. It's, you know, so I just give up. Um, it can lead to forms of eclecticism where we think, oh, you know what, everyone's, everyone's view is valid. You know, everyone's um, approach is, is valid equally valid and and uh, you know and so therefore let's have as many views as possible yeah because that's not going to help you resolve any of these problems either it's inclusive but it doesn't help you resolve the problems 
And then the other aspect is dogmatism. It can lead you to a narrow route where you can think this is the only way, you know, actually, and everyone is sort of in their different style of saying, no, this is the only way, this is the only way, you know. So we often see that, like I said, in politics and society. So this idea of competing or contested concepts is a philosophical flaw, I think. So this is what you've just touched on, really, that a better way to see um, these sorts of problems is to look at look at them as conceptions. There are different conceptions of um, freedom. And in order to understand and evaluate each sort of conception in a context, you know, we need to see what the, what's at stake and what are the sorts of problems we want to address in a particular context. And then we're able to navigate the knowledge Right. Okay. So it's you know that isn't a that isn't a conceptual problem, a philosophical problem. It's an empirical problem. You know. So, but these are philosophical skills, philosophical understanding that it, that are lacking. And you know, and I, there's no disrespect um, to many of my you know um, peers in, in in academia, but it is lacking even in academia. You know, some fundamental philosophical skills. A lot of researchers are lacking those those fundamental skills because of their training. They've been taught a certain way, a trajectory, and that's just that it's natural. And it's the, they shouldn't be blamed or anything for it, even. You know, it's just it's a natural outcome of a very narrow form of training. Um, so what I think we do need is a lot more exposure to, to philosophy, a lot more exposure to philosophical thinking. Um, and, and, you know, I think it can potentially unlock that imaginative realm and give us insight to how to navigate problems and knowledge. You know, so that uh, that's really what I think is it, it's powerful. It's really, really powerful and liberatory. That's what I'm trying to suggest. You know, it's not just a it's not like a geeky thing, you know, although it can be geeky, too, if you're if you if you want to geek out on, on 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 philosophical problems. But, you know, it can be potentially really transformative. It goes back to what um, Heisenberg said about what we study is not nature, but nature subjected to our form of questioning. And that's really coming from like one of the most cutting edge physicists of his time. And, and then when, when you when you mentioned this this need for more philosophy, I keep and, and the fact that we have to contextualize, that we have to ask questions, look at within the environment. There's a lot of ingredients that go into this pot. But then I keep thinking about these curriculums, the, these textbooks that just follow each other around and how not only is that not alive, but it's it's not representative of anything. It goes back to the facts that you were mentioning. It's funny because you say history, you know, all the facts. I, I'm, you know, as a historian, I'm drawn to history because of the imagination, because of like picturing myself walking through streets of what it might have been like. But that's just taken from us when we learn about dates. <laughs> right. Totally. And, uh, you know, history is a fascinating, I love, I, I, I it's probably one of my favorite topics is history. I particularly love ancient history, um, but I absolutely love history. I mean, you know, it is about storytelling, isn't it? You wrote that uh, you know, blog recently on storytelling. So fantastic. Um, really, really um, powerful, I think. Um, and pithy, pithy blog that you wrote. That. It's, you know, storytelling is, I think, in many ways, that key to unlocking the imagination. And when you have this narrow compartmentalized approach to knowledge, this is what stifles that understanding and that imagination in children as well as adults um, and in culture, civilization, you know, stifles the imagination um, and it impairs our ability to navigate problems and to visualize a better, better future ahead. You know, storytelling, you know, often we, we might look down on some of the ancients for their myths, for, for example, and the way that they conceptualize the world you know, the flat earth or, you know, these gods that, you know, that were living in the sky that would cause thunder and rain and stuff. 
And we forget that actually these were very sophisticated concepts, <laughs> you know, these, 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 these myths, these gods and everything, they were, they were essentially, they were a form of con conceptualizations that helped them understand the world. It did, to me, it doesn't matter that they were factually wrong. It's not about facts, you know, it's about, I think, understanding our place in the world. And I think the, the ancients had much better ways of tapping into the imagination in ways that help us to navigate the world in a more fulfilling and meaningful way. Um, that's the that's the kind of struggle of our modern era is this obsession with science and and you know which like a hinted at is sort of a form of scientism because it just it just completely inhibits our sense of meaning as a human being. Um, we lose we lose track of. What, what it is to be a human, what it is to be a social being, what it is to 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 be a problematic being, you know, um, navigating really difficult um, issues because of our intelligence, we can see more problems, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so all of these difficulties that we have, we have, we, we lack the ability to navigate and to move forward, because of these underlying presumptions that's that that's type and practices that uh, and philosophies that stifle um stifle our understanding so so yeah i think i think there's a lot that we can learn from the ancients from indigenous peoples from other ways of thinking and in many ways that's what what i do with flourish cafe with my i've got a social enterprise i um work with communities and I, we we work in with visual thinking methods of visual thinking and that helps to unlock the imagination you know what i mean it's, it's almost like you know when we have this sort of snobbery towards the ancients it's a bit like you know imagine being snobby towards um a child using a metaphor you know um on a piece of paper i mean it's ridiculous i think um you know it's a metaphor it's meant to be a metaphor it's meant to be um a tool for thinking and for conceptualizing the world and we should appreciate the imaginative power um of of, of metaphor and and uh, Etc. As long as we do have as well, I think that it needs to, needs to, we need we do need logic and and, and rationality to complement. You know, otherwise we get lost very easily. So there needs to be a good balance. Um, I don't know if any of that made sense, but it, it, it does. And I really appreciate again this um, refusal to create um, these. I, I guess these completely separate entities of you know myth against subjectivity and and, and just realize that they're actually quite entangled and intertwined um I, i'll ask you the last question which is actually the etc section what what's on your mind what's on your horizons in the next uh, few weeks months years where, where you're kind of walking toward i'm increasingly interested well i mean i work in school of education here at Baspar, and i'm i'm very interested in the transformative power of education um so that's what's really on my on my on my you know sort of uh, uh, in my in my vision at the moment is to is to try to think about how I can contribute to um, some change um, in education um, in some form or another. Um, so yeah, and I think you know for me it it it, it is uh, you know about rethinking the nature of education, what we mean by education education and how we do education as a practice so um so that's really what i'm interested in and passionate about right now um, um and um i'm also doing my work with, with 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 flourish cafe and communities which is unlocking the imagination so i think that's a for me there's a social justice drive here 
as well. Um, I'm interested in democratizing flourishing, taking it away from the experts, um, you know, and um, helping um, uh, local communities to articulate for themselves what they mean by flourishing and what it means for them in terms of um, both their vision, their imagination, their hopes, their dreams, but also their responsibilities, right? So I think we need a new, a renewed sense of responsibility at the citizen level, um, but um, that requires a space um, within which people can dialogue um, freely um, within. So, so yeah, so I think imaginative spaces um, with my work with Flourish Cafe, and then if you like, um, you know, um, uh, campaigning or, you know, using philosophy as a form of campaigning or a form of transfor transformation in education is, is us, but that's where I'm at at the moment. Um, and and it's enough because my teaching load is huge. So um, there's not a lot of space that I have for this other stuff, but, um, but obviously I try to practice what I preach when it comes to teaching as well. So I try to create those spaces for students, which is important. Sineri, I feel like there's so much more we can we could unravel here. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time, and I really appreciate your insights and and, and the energy and and actually taking some quite difficult, complex topics and 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 laying them out in ways that uh, that, that make sense and and hopefully inspire us to to realize that there's no separation and contradictory concepts are actually complementary. Thank you. Thank you. This was the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Benjamin Freud. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. And of course, check out our partners on Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.